Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week, we are going into the last portion of the book of Genesis, and next week we'll be starting into Exodus. And in this last portion, we have the end of the life of both Jacob and Joseph. And for the past three weeks, we've been going through the life, the story of the life of Joseph and seeing how he, uh, how he acted as a savior for his brothers and how many times we saw within him and his life pictures of our Messiah, Yeshua. Well, this week we'll, see, we'll continue along that theme, looking at how Joseph was one who brought unity and completion of the promises. Not necessarily completion, but a degree of fulfillment of the promises. And of course, Yeshua is the one who brings unity, not just within Israel, but within the whole world. And he is the fulfillment of the promises, some of which have yet to be completed, but will be one day, as we spoke of last week, with his return. And this week, the portion opens up speaking of Jacob requesting that Joseph bring his bones up out of Egypt and bury him with his fathers in the land of Israel. And he gets Joseph to swear that he will do it in order that Joseph would be able to perform it, even though it would be something that could be offensive to Pharaoh, to allow someone who is a high dignitary within the land of Egypt to be buried somewhere else. So Joseph promises that he would do so. And as Jacob's days are coming to an end, he's going to bless his children. Before he gives his blessing over all of his children, he has Joseph bring his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to him so that he can bless them. So let's start here in Genesis 48, verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So one of the things that Jacob is saying to Joseph in this moment is he's recalling a blessing that God had given him back in Genesis 35. And he's giving an explanation for why he's taking Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children. Now he says... Here in verse 4, he says, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land your offspring after you. Now, within that, it may not be very clear how that's connected to him saying that Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. But if we were to look back at Genesis 35, 
verses 11 through 12. This is when Jacob is on his way. Um, he's already come in, come into Shechem, but then he's going to be headed down to um, Bethel again and then on to Bethlehem. But before he made it into Bethlehem, when he was still at Luz, God said to him, I'm God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, he says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Now, he already knows that he has been fruitful and multiplied, but yet there's still a call for him to be fruitful and, multi and to multiply even from this point. Because at this time, he has 11 sons and one daughter. But, but God says to him, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And the sages say that Jacob understood this and that he would have a son and more sons. So after this blessing comes the birth of Benjamin, where his wife, Rachel, dies. So there's a nation. But then there's the question of what about the company of nations that will come? And so in Genesis 48, when Jacob's explaining to Joseph, he says, he brings this blessing back up, and he doesn't say a nation will come from you. He just says, I will make you a congregation of nations. He brings up the second part of that blessing of the congregation of nations being at least two, Ephraim and Manasseh, that would come to him. And so now he has the opportunity to see all of these aspects, with the exception of the land becoming his children's, come into place because they have been fruitful and numerous, as was stated at the end of our last portion in Genesis 47, 27. The scriptures thus said, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, Egypt, in the region of Goshen, they acquired property in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So now you're seeing each of these portions of the blessing come to pass, and he's taking Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. So then Joseph brings his sons to him, and we'll go ahead and read here in Genesis 48, 13. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so what happened here is Joseph knew his father couldn't see well, so he knows that the primal blessing, the, the primary blessing would be from the right hand. So he places his firstborn in front of Jacob, in front of Jacob's right hand, and his secondborn in, in front of Jacob's left hand, hoping that Jacob would just reach forward his hands like this, say the blessing, it would all work out just as Joseph intended, but instead Jacob crosses his hands because he perceived spiritually that Ephraim, even though he was the younger, would be the one who would be greater. So he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. 
and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So he blessed both of them, but put, putting Ephraim first. And then he makes the statement of, well, within the blessing, he says, may my name be placed upon them, and may the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac be placed upon them. So within doing this, he is making a full adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children, as on the same level as the other 11. And by doing this, he gives Jacob or he gives Joseph a double portion because in the inheritance the firstborn receives a double portion and he had the he had the birthright Joseph had the birthright he was going to receive a double portion for him to receive a double portion in the land he needed to have two sons compared to all the other brothers okay so in doing this, he gives Joseph the double portion. He brings these children in as full inheritors, adopting them as his own. And one of the aspects of saying that all Israel will bless their children, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, has multiple blessings within it. One is the aspect of saying, these children who were born in a foreign land, raised in a foreign culture, they held to your word and to your truth. And they did not assimilate and become as one of the nations. So one of the prayers, one of the blessings, is that even though the children of Israel could be in exile, even though they could be surrounded by foreign influence, may they overcome. So when we bless our children, it's may you overcome. May you not be of the world, but you may, may you be children of the living God. And then also, too, his, Joseph's children were elevated and given a prime place within the people of Israel. So even in the blessing, it's may you be elevated and may you have a great impact within God's kingdom, within his people. So when we say these blessings over our children, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing that is imbued with much meaning beyond just may you be like these two children. It's may God's name be upon you. May you be children of the covenant, the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And may you be elevated to a place of impact in God's kingdom. And within this, within the story of Ephraim and Manasseh being adopted as children of Jacob, oftentimes, it's seen as a picture of the engrafting of the nations. 
Because just as Ephraim and Manasseh were born to Joseph in a foreign land while he was ruling over that foreign land, so too we could look at Yeshua, who currently is enthroned on high and is, and is seated in power, but yet he is one who is seen as among the nations, being separated from Israel to some degree. Now, there are many in Israel who have come to know Yeshua as Messiah, but the vast majority see him as a foreigner. And yet, he is reigning, he is royalty, and there are many who he has brought as offspring into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the engrafting by his blood, by his intercession and his provision. So we can see this picture of the nations being adopted as sons of God. And I don't know how far we'll go into this, um, but we see some of this picture in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 can be a challenging chapter to go through. Actually, the whole book of Galatians can be a challenging one to go through unless you have a lot of time to really go deep and understand what Paul was talking about and understand the framework and the context through which he was speaking. So I doubt I can give it um, justice in a short amount of time here, especially because I really don't intend this to be the focus of where we're going to, to camp out today. But I did want to touch on it because of the blessing that we have in Yeshua, the blessing that both Israel and the nations receive through him that through faith the nations can become the children of God adopted as sons. So I'm going to just kind of pick and choose a few verses in here. How about that? Okay, so let's go into Galatians 3. Chapter or Galatians 3, verse 6. Nicely done. Whoever's running the slides to just pull this up. <laughs> okay, so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing the. I'm sorry, hang on one second. Um, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so I'll, I'll keep going this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Messiah Yeshua the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, so I want to pause there for just a moment, because one of the things here, it says, Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. One thing that's important to understand here is the curse of the law 
is not the law itself. Sometimes it can be interpreted as though he redeemed us from having to be under the curse of the law, having to be under the law. But the curse of the law is not the law itself, but it is the fact that any man who sins will die. So Messiah has redeemed us from death, which comes as a result of sin, so that we might live. Okay? Because the, the law itself is the righteousness of God that leads us to Messiah. He didn't come to re redeem us or deliver us from the righteousness of God, but instead to bring us into the righteousness of God and redeem us from death. So he sets us free from death so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Messiah. So in this, he makes a statement and says, even a man-made covenant is not set aside after it has been ratified, and, and nothing is added to it once it's been ratified. How much more, then, would a covenant made by God be set aside or added to? Right? So he's making this point of the promise God made to Abraham cannot be set aside or added to. And then he says, this is what I mean. The Torah, the law, which came 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant and a, a covenant previously ratified by God, by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul, in his argument, in his argument is saying that it, is, it has always been by faith that salvation has come. It has never been according to the keeping of the Torah, right? From the very beginning of time, even in the garden, salvation came by grace through faith. He's saying it came by grace through faith to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through Joseph, to the descendants. And, it, and that promise cannot be set aside and it is through that promise that the children of Israel and all the nations who are grafted into get grafted in through Messiah are saved by grace through faith. This does not nullify the Torah or mean that it is of no importance, rather it has a different place within the living out of righteousness in the children of God, but it does not set them into right standing with God because it's faith that sets one in right standing with God through the power and the work of Yeshua, okay? Through his faithfulness. All right, so then in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right, so really, we, we kind of need to couple this with Romans to get a full picture of this, but I'm not prepared to do that. But what I will say is that he says it was added because of transgressions. There's a point where Paul makes a statement that's saying, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Right? This, the law gave definition to what sin is. And so within doing that, it shuts up all men under sin such that we may rely wholly upon God for salvation. Now, when Paul says that, we could say, you know what? Without the Torah, sin would not exist because that's the only way that Paul knew it. That would be an inaccurate reading of what Paul said, even though that's literally what he said. Because even before the Torah was given, there was sin, right? So sin existed prior to the giving of the Torah, but the Torah gave explanation of what righteousness was a greater revelation of what righteousness is such that it actually created more opportunity for stumbling. But the purpose of the law was not to create stumbling, but to create righteousness into those to whom it had been revealed. Because those to whom it had been revealed would begin to walk in it to a greater measure. Okay, so then verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Right? So the law came 430 years after the promise of God, but is it contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the, pro so that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. Now take note of what he said there. He said that the law could not give life. The idea that anyone could be saved by keeping the law is a falsehood. It's a deception. And even in the time when Paul speaks about it, he said some approached it as though it were by works rather than by faith. And that those people are under condemnation. But it's to be pursued by faith. It's interesting, right? So God gave the Torah not as a vehicle of salvation, but as a vehicle of righteousness and as a vehicle of protecting the relationship between God and his covenant people. Okay, so now before faith came, we were held captive under the Torah, under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, this imprisoned, Living by the Torah is not imprisoned. Living under the law of sin and death, bound by it, that is imprisoned. And let me give an explanation of this. If we believe that living under the Torah is being imprisoned, then what we say is that we liken God unto Pharaoh. Okay, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And God sought to redeem them from their imprisonment so that he could bring them unto himself at Mount Sinai and draw them into covenant. And when he did, he said, I'm giving you this Torah so that you can live. 
Not that it's going to give you everlasting life, but that it will produce life within you because you walk in my righteousness. If we say that God delivered the children of Israel from Pharaoh's imprisonment so that he could then imprison them under this wicked Torah, then we actually defame God and his character and his nature and his purpose of salvation. His salvation is to bring life. The giving of the Torah was to give life, not everlasting life, but to give the life of righteousness and drawing close to God. This is why I say it's hard to read Galatians without talking about what are the implications because we can read it with the mindset of what perhaps we've been taught our whole life and glaze over real quick and say, yeah, he set us free from the Torah. He set us free from all this stuff so that we can really live. No, he set us free from death so that we can really live in right relationship with God according to his word and the righteousness revealed in his Torah. He said, the, so then the law, the Torah was given as our guardian until Messiah came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian, this does not mean that the Torah has gone away with now because faith has come. Because what did he say? He said the Torah is not contrary to the promise, which is by faith. They're not at odds with one another. It's not like one exists and then the other comes and the other can't exist. They exist concurrently. But what happens is now that the revelation of the righteousness of Messiah has been given to us, we are now taken to a higher level of understanding of the Torah and its righteousness because it's been revealed in the flesh to a greater degree so that we can follow our Messiah who shepherds us through all things. So it brought us to being able to recognize Messiah, to see his righteousness manifest in the earth, and then for us to walk in it in a, an even higher degree. And he says that in Messiah Yeshua, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiah's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, so he's making the case that both Jew and those who are of the nations have been adopted as sons through faith according to the promise of Abraham. It is through the Abrahamic covenant that the nations enter into the covenants with God. Now when he says to have to make this point that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There still is Jew or Greek in the physical. He's saying in the spiritual realm, there is not a distinction between the salvation to one and salvation to the other because they are both saved by grace through faith and are all heirs according to the promise given to Abraham. Because if he's really saying there's not Jew or Greek, then he's really saying there's not male or female. And this woke world we live in is really ahead of their time right? Okay. But there is male and there is female. There is Jew and there is Greek. Okay. But yet all can be saved through Messiah and made heirs according to the promise given to Abraham. Right. So beautiful, wonderful, right? And it's this God who shepherds us and leads us, just as Jacob said, 
God who shepherds me and the angel who redeems me from all evil, he still moves in us today to shepherd us, to lead us, to guide us, and redeem us from all evil. And the blessing, the blessing is poured out upon us through Yeshua, who just as Joseph endured many sufferings in order to become the shepherd of all Israel. Now, we'll come back to that, I think, that thought. But I want to continue back in Genesis 48. So he blesses them, blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in Genesis 48, 21, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Okay. This is one of those interesting times when I don't know why the translation says it this way. Like where he says, I've given you one mountain slope. When very distinctly in the scriptures it says, As for me, I have given you Shechem, one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite. Shechem is not just a mountain slope. Shechem is a very important location in the land of Israel, not just because it's a, a central place, but because of what has taken place in Shechem. So when he says, I've given you Shechem, there's something significant at play. Now, there's, there's different opinions according to the, the sages and rabbis of what was, what was Jacob trying to convey here. Was he talking about uh, his wisdom and prayer, his, the spiritual weapons that he used in order to overcome and take the birthright, which then he passes on to Joseph? Um, but I, I think that it's... I think there's something deeper... To this aspect. Okay, there's a few things. Many bad things happened in Shechem. Shechem is the place where Dinah, Jacob's daughter, was abducted, abducted and raped. It's the place where Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. It's also the place where Rehoboam announced that he was going to place extra burdens upon all the, all the tribes of Israel, even more than his father Solomon had done. And as a result of him doing that, the ten tribes of the north split off under King Jeroboam, leaving, you know, dividing the northern and southern Israel. Shechem was a place of trial and difficulty. And on one hand, we know that Joseph, or Jacob had sent Joseph to Shechem to check on the welfare of his brothers, right? And that's where he was sold. So we could think, well, perhaps he was given Shechem because he had suffered there and he had attained it through his faithfulness. But, but there's an, an additional aspect. Shechem wasn't just a place where bad things happened. It's also a place where there were promises made and expectation of God fulfilling his promises. So if we go back to Genesis 12, going all the way back to the Lech Lecha, when God sent Abraham from his land, to a place that he was going to be shown. And when Abram set out 
he took his family with him, and Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, so this was a place of the promise of the land being given to Abram. Now this was when Abram was 75 years old. When he was 70, just five years prior, that's when we had the covenant between the parts. When God appeared to him and said, your, strangers, or your, your offspring will be strangers in a land not their own for 400 years. And I'm, now I'm regretting not having the, the timeline up here on the screen. But that was when Abram was 70. Okay, 30 years later, Isaac is born. And that begins the 400-year countdown until the Exodus. Okay? Because now Abram's offspring are living in a land not their own. Okay, so we go forward from that point. But that's where the promise of the land came. So now Abraham has the promise of offspring that he was given five years earlier. Now at this point, at Shechem, he's told, your offspring will inherit this land. So now fast forward to Genesis 33. Jacob has been with Laban for 20 years. He now has his children with him. And he has left Laban. He's made peace with Esau. And he's coming into the land. And Jacob came safely. This is uh, Genesis 33:18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from, from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And, the, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael. Okay? So he comes into Shechem and he buys the land. He's at the point where he's seeing, okay, the promises are being fulfilled. I've been made into a people's. Look at all my offspring. I'm coming into the land. I've made peace with Esau. I'm buying land here in Shechem, right where the promise of the land was given to Abraham. Things are going to be good. And then the trials begin to hit, one right after the other. And these trials, embedded within the trials, are all divisions within the brothers. It's all strife within the family. Okay, so Dinah is abducted and raped. And if you recall, several weeks ago, we talked about the likelihood, or what, what appears to be from the Scripture, an outrage from the other sons of Leah that Jacob wasn't doing anything about Dinah being abducted, which is why it's Simeon and Levi who go and strike down all the inhabitants, all the males of Shechem. Because the outrage being, do you not care about this daughter of your, le of your less loved wife? Do you really only care about Rachel and Joseph? Right? And so there's, this, there's a, a family strife that's taking place even within this aspect of what's happening in this first instance of Simeon and Levi taking out the men of Shechem. And then you have the strife between the brothers, the betrayal of Joseph and him being sold. And then with Rehoboam, you have the strife between brothers yet again, where it's the nations being divided. 
So now what, he, what Jacob is saying to Joseph, he's saying, look, you are one who has gone through the strife. You're, the one, you're one who has gone through the difficulty. But yet even through all the difficulty that you've gone through, the betrayal, the suffering, being put in a pit, you've overcome. And you haven't sought to take revenge on your brothers. You haven't sought to punish them at all. You have been a true brother. And you remain faithful to your God. Even in the midst of Egypt, you didn't turn away from him. You never spoke ill of your brothers. You're the one who has the ability and capacity to bring unity back to the family and fulfillment of the promises. So to you, I'm giving Shechem. It's a pretty cool picture. And thought of even, you know, we speak so much about Yeshua, or Joseph being a deliverer. He was also a unifier. And we speak of the, the parallels between him and Yeshua. Yeshua is a deliverer. He's also a unifier, right? He's the one who brings in the nations into one family. He's the one who can bring peace among the children of Israel and between Israel and the nations. There's none other that can do it. And just as Joseph earned it through his suffering and his faithfulness, so too Yeshua did it through his faithfulness and suffering. Okay, so now after this, we're going to go into the blessings that Jacob gave to his children. And we're not going to go into all of the blessings but we're going to look a little bit here at the blessing that was spoken over Joseph in Genesis 49. Genesis 49, 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers." Okay, so he spoke of the sorrows and the suffering and the betrayal that Joseph underwent. And he spoke, and he spoke too of how Joseph had the ability to strike out against those who had hurt him. But he held back, even though he had the power, the authority, and the ability to harm his brothers, he remained diligent and would not do it. And his hands were strengthened by God in order not to harm them. And, he, and one thing that he says here too is he says, from there he shepherded the stone of Israel. Right? It's from that place that he became the shepherd of Israel. The one who could lead his brothers. The ones that could unite his brothers. Okay, so he's brought in, he's, he's protected his brothers, he has brought them a salvation. 
And then two, we've spoken of the engrafting of the nations, the bringing of Ephraim and Manasseh. And of course, Ephraim and Manasseh were sons of Joseph, sons of Jacob. But we have the illustration of the engrafting of the nations. And that even ties to the idea of Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 7. In here, the scripture says, And now the Lord says, He who formed you from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. All right, so this passage is speaking of the coming Messiah who is not just going to be a salvation for Israel but for the nations as well because God says it's too small of a thing that you would only bring them back for the merit that you have is sufficient to bring in all, all of the nations. And this says that kings will see and arise and they shall prostrate themselves because of the faithful Holy One of Israel. Okay? And, and really with the blessing of, that's given to Judah is the same, same picture. You know, uh, bringing Judah into this part might be a little confusing, but it doesn't have to be too bad uh, because there's promises given to Joseph and the salvation that he brings and how he is the shepherd of Israel. There's a Messiah son of Joseph and a Messiah son of David according to messianic expectation, the suffering Messiah and the reigning Messiah. Okay, the suffering Messiah came first. The reigning Messiah is when Yeshua returns. But one of the things here, and the blessing given to Judah, this is from Genesis 49, in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a scholar from among his descendants, until Shiloh shall arrive, and his will be an assemblage of nations. He will tie his donkey to the vine, to the vine branch his donkey's full, and he will launder his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. Very much seeing a picture here of the second coming of Yeshua. Now, the sages understood here the use of the word Shiloh to be a reference to the Messiah who was to come. The Messiah would come from the line of Judah. And of course, we know Judah, David is of the line of Judah. But he says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a scholar from among his descendants until Shiloh shall arrive and his will be an assemblage of nations. So the Messiah will come and his assemblage will be of the nations. He will be drawing the nations in. And now, if you notice the word used here, it says until Shiloh shall arrive. Just like what we were reading in the book of Galatians when he says we were under a tutor until Messiah, same thing here until Shiloh shall arrive d does not mean that at that point the scepter departs from Judah. And instead, it's speaking also of a reference of the, the scepter shall not depart from D Judah 
as far as Messiah, and then at that point, it will be an elevated rulership. Okay, so we'll see a greater revelation of the scepter in the line of Judah when Messiah sits on the throne. And we know that that's going to be the case because Yeshua will sit on the throne from Jerusalem and he will reign over the whole world and the Torah will go forth from Zion to all of the land. It will be an elevation of what we had before. Okay, so we have the expectation of the bringing in of the nations and we see through Joseph, he has the ability to bring unity where there was no unity. He has, he has the ability to restore what was lost. And with that, we come into a story that I think is required to go over every year during this portion. And it has to do with the burial of Jacob. So we opened up the portion with Jacob making Joseph give a promise that he would bury his father in the land of Israel. And so after Jacob dies, after the period of mourning takes place in Egypt, then Joseph goes up to bring his father to the land and bury him there. So in Genesis 50, starting in verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Avel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre which Abraham had bought with the, fee, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. All right. So he takes him to bury, to bury him, and they have a... Okay. The Scripture speaks of this mourning at this threshing floor of Atad beyond the Jordan. And then it goes on to say that after that, he goes into the land, he crosses the Jordan, and goes into the uh, Hebron where there's the field at Machpelah. Now, if I had a graph of the, the region up here, it would be really helpful to you. So instead, I'm just going to use my hands. Okay, no, I don't know. Maybe I will. All right. So you have Egypt, okay? And then you have Israel. I'm doing this from your perspective, I think. Yes. Because Israel lies to the east of Egypt. Okay, so you have Egypt, you have Israel, you have the Jordan. So they went past Hebron over to the other side of the Jordan and stopped at the threshing floor of Atad and had a mourning for Jacob. And then they crossed the Jordan 
and then went into Hebron for his burial. Why didn't they just go to Hebron? Like, why? I mean, that's the straight shot. Why would they go all the way around? Well, interestingly, that's the path that the children of Israel end up taking on their conquest of the land because they came in on the east side of the Jordan and crossed over the Jordan to come into the land to conquer. That's a fascinating thing. So really, in some way, Joseph took the path that his descendants would one day take in the Exodus. But now, we stop at this threshing floor of Atad, and there's this mourning that takes place there. And it's such a big deal that the threshing floor of Atad is, is mentioned twice in this short passage. And they say, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw this mourning, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. So now to understand what's really going on in this story, we, we need to take a look at the Talmud. We need to look at what the, uh, what the historical understanding is in this place. And this is in Sota 13a and b is where, where this, is, this story is covered. But in, in Hebrew, it's called Goren Ha'atad, okay? which is the threshing floor of the thorn bush. The threshing floor of the thorn bush. Now that's odd because a threshing floor is where you sift your, your harvest such that you can get the chaff away from the grain. Do thorn bushes have a harvest that you need to thresh? No. They don't. So why would you have a threshing floor of the thorn bush? Fascinating, right? And so the explanation of why it's called the threshing floor of the thorn bush comes from tradition here in the... Well, I mean, it comes from the scripture, okay? But the understanding of why it's called that comes from tradition. And in this, what happened is as Joseph is bringing his father Jacob up for burial, the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, and there's another one, another set of sons that I cannot remember at the moment. Uh, I believe it's the sons of Esau, maybe. But it, okay, but it's the people. Uh, it's the people of Canaan. It's the children of Ishmael children of Keturah, okay? It's all children who have the land or are the offspring of Abraham who were not of the chosen line. It was all people who didn't get all the blessing. It's the people who were overlooked, who felt left behind, betrayed, not treated right. And they were coming to make war against Joseph in that moment. And the story that's told is that when they were getting ready to come and attack, they saw Joseph's tomb. They didn't see his tomb. They saw, his, or they saw Jacob's coffin. And on the coffin, they saw Joseph's crown hanging. And when they saw that Joseph had placed his crown on the coffin, that changed their hearts. Because in that moment, they saw that the son 
who was the king and was the one who was betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers, if he could come to his father and take off his crown and place it on the coffin to give honor and to love his family, then how much more could they who do not hold his high rank, who did not hold that level of betrayal. And so they too came and took off their crowns and laid them around the coffin, such that it was 36 crowns surrounding the coffin. And the crowns looked like a crown of thorns around the coffin. And in that, there was peace and honor given to Joseph and to the children of Israel. In fact, when the scripture says that they went up to go and bury Jacob, the scripture mentions Joseph going up and all the people of Egypt going up and then the brothers. But when they're coming back, the order is changed. It's Joseph going and his brothers and Egypt. The brothers were seen in a new light, both in the eyes of Egypt and in the eyes of those in the surrounding nations because of the sacrifice of Joseph, right? So, and I can't help but see within this story that all these crowns placed around the coffin made a crown of thorns. And Yeshua, our Savior, He too bore a crown of thorns in the moment of His betrayal, in the moment of His sacrifice. And from that place, he became the shepherd of all Israel and of all the nations who he would gather in, the assemblage of the nations where he will shepherd and rule and reign. He's the one who guides us and keeps us from all evil, the one who is with us and before us, and his name is placed upon us. There is no greater blessing than to be those who are the children of God through the faithfulness of Yeshua. Amen. Let's read, uh, let's conclude the reading of the book of Genesis here in Genesis chapter 50. Now, after we read these verses and we conclude Genesis, the book of Genesis We'll, we'll together say chazak, chazak. We'll have it up on the screen here momentarily. So in Genesis 50, verses 23 through 26, the scripture says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the, of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in, in Egypt. Now together. Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Hazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Does anybody have anything you'd like to share? So this week, 
um, Amy asked me a question. We got into an argument because I didn't know the answer and I was really upset. So the question was, why did, why did Jacob choose Ephraim? Why, why did he favor him? Why did he make him greater than his younger brother? And we were just guessing. Um, but then this morning you brought up Genesis 35 and things just started connecting, right? So Ephraim was half Gentile and adopted, as you said, um, equal to the sons of Israel. Yaakov blessed him by crossing his hands. And that was one thing that Razi said um, today, like he made a cross with his hands, which was unexpected by Yosef, right? That was a complete surprise. And, you know, we know the Jews were kind of surprised when what Gentiles were, you know, receiving the spirit. And then so Ephraim is like para, fruitful, or to make fruitful, and like peri, like bore peri hagafen, fruit. And so I realized that that word is actually in his name. And that made sense with Genesis 35. Um, the word of God to Yaakov in Genesis 35 was that he was going to make him fruitful. And he, I, I feel like he mentioned in that both Yosef and Judah, right? A nation indeed, a group of nations will come from you. So I saw Yehuda and or Yosef and then kings will be descended from you. And I saw Yehuda there, right? So Messiah, son of Joseph, Messiah, son of David. And then um, Yosef also means to add. And the northern kingdom of Israel was often called Ephraim. Um, and Ephraim was scattered through all the world, and they are known as the Ten Lost Tribes. And then in Ezekiel 37, Elohim says, I will take the stick of Yosef, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together, the stick of Yehuda, and make them a single stick, so they become one in my hand. And then um, in Romans, but if some of the branches were broken off and you a wild olive were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then do not boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. And then in Ephesians, but now you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. Amen. I was amazed um, that Joseph's brothers, after all Joseph had done for them, that when they went back, they were fearful. And I make up that they had really not accepted the forgiveness of their brother. And they were feeling shame, and shame led them to feeling, uh, uh, you know, a fear. And, uh, and it's just amazing to me, and I, I, I've said it before many times in my lifetime, how so many people, when Yeshua was doing miracles and, and you know, was uh, preparing the kingdom, um, and, I, and I had said to myself earlier in my life that, you know, how could his disciples be fearful and how could they not really believe him when he had done all these things? They walked with him. They saw him doing those things. And those of us who have not seen it and still believe are to be blessed in doing that. But isn't that what we do? Isn't when God does such miracles in our lives and yet the next big thing, the next mountain that comes along or something, you know, we start getting fearful about that. And I, I've never counted it. I'm sure somebody knows how many times in the Bible God says, do not fear. 
And I think that's so important is that um, when you have faith and you have action, when you have faith and works, okay, is that you don't, in my opinion, you don't get the faith by works. You get the faith by believing, and the works come from that belief. And uh, anyway, I was just really surprised about Joseph's brothers. You know, they had been so blessed, had been given the cattle and everything, and yet is that not what we do? Yeah, absolutely. That it is an interesting thing, um, you know, because they'd been with him for 17 years, and but there was the fear that perhaps he was going to do as Esau had done, and say, well, that when the when my father passes, then I'm going to get Jacob. So there was a there had been a uh, example before, and so they were concerned that he would walk in that same example. But you're right; they didn't need to fear, but instead he spoke comfort to them and spoke to their hearts and assured them that God was in control all along. And so it's, yeah, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture that of our need really to receive forgiveness and the life through Yeshua no matter what we've gone through yeah, or any of our failings. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that you offer. Thank you, Lord, for Yeshua being king over all the earth, yet not seeking retribution, but instead speaking comfort to our hearts. Lord, thank you that your intentions toward us are good. And Lord, thank you that you are the one who brings life. Lord, we thank you for uh, your kindness toward us and ask that you would speak to us as we continue to walk through our week and go about the rest of this Shabbat. Lord, we give you glory and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.